All right, guys, welcome back to the Adam Pilafitz podcast. I do not know how to say my name there. Wow, great intro, Adam. Um, great, start, great star already. So, welcome back to the Adam Pilafitz podcast. Um, today on the show, I have Josh Pelland. Um, I don't know if you're not seeing your last name right, Pelland. Dude, you you nailed it. Uh, usually it's Pelland, Pelland, uh, or people will just think that the N is an R, so it's still like Pellard. Um, Dude, that yeah, happens to my name too. Like, I go, I'm gonna move to Utah. People are like Adam Pillar. I'm like, what? Yeah, Pat Pillar. It, yeah, yeah. It's it's, but yeah, no, you nailed it, Josh Pelland. Um, but uh, Josh works as well. So cool. Well, uh, Josh has a lot of um, Josh works with data, data director from the strength, and um, you believe you work with with Zach like in the same like lab. It's getting your uh, getting your is it your doctorate at this point? Your your PhD. Yeah, I believe you're doing um, something with, with hypertrophy, whereas he's doing like proximity to failure, correct? Uh, we, we have a lot of projects going on. So we kind of have like projects sure. that the lab uh, is kind of doing. And then we have like our own individual dissertations. So yeah, some of our recent research has been in the proximity to failure arena. Zach's um, dissertation research is specifically on individualization. Uh, which is a really cool project. And then my research for my dissertation will be on uh, skeletal muscle resensitization, which is a, a fancy term there. So those are kind of our, our dissertation projects. But then we have, you know, we also have like a, a volume study that should be out relatively soon, some muscle length research. So many, uh, also a concurrent training paper that uh, we're, we're working on getting out the door. So many, uh, many things kind of going on. So actually going off of that, um, I'm curious about like the concurrent training thing because I think a lot of powerlifters, especially, um, they get very much in their head about doing any sort of cardio or any sort of like, you know, ex extra physical activity um, outside uh, of training and, um, you know, interfering with the strength gains. And uh, one thing I like to say is we'll look at the, you know, NFL athletes, they do a lot, lots of cardio and they're arguably the biggest and strongest people um, right now. You know, if you put any of those guys in strict powerlifting training, like they would absolutely blow up. Um, so mm -hmm. as far as like, concurrent training goes um i guess my biggest question there is like what's the extent of like the the interference effect with say something like cardio or higher step counts um should powerlifters really be concerned about, about about that or is it mostly just a matter of you know if you're habituated to it does your body kind of just figure things out yeah i think there are there's kind of like a sliding scale of the interference effect if that makes sense um but with any decision regarding the level of cardiovascular training you have there there's going to be there's going to be a give and a take right so like from a molecular perspective you could say that the best approach uh to maximize your powerlifting performance or your 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 muscle gain is going to be absolutely no cardiovascular training and you should just be nearly sedentary uh to avoid any sort of uh interference effect between cardio and, and resistance training but obviously that just fails the uh uh, that that just you know doesn't have any face validity to it so i think it's like a sliding scale of like you know we kind of need this background uh work capacity which honestly i i don't think that powerlifters need to do a ton of cardiovascular training at least on average um but i think as coaches being able to identify when that is a bottleneck to their training i think that is an important you know thing to be able to to notice and have strategies to implement it um, and I, I think there are some relatively basic things that can be done to minimize the the interference effect. Um, you know, like we know that the interference effect uh, is probably a local phenomenon primarily. So, you know, maybe avoid doing 
uh, like very intense cycling right after squatting, but very intense cycling right after bench press probably is less consequential. Um, so, you know, I, I don't think it's a, a must do for a powerlifter, but I think it's a, it can be a helpful tool at times. Yeah, um, I, I do think having, you know, some basic level of, you know, cardiovascular fitness is necessary for health. And I think as yeah. far as powerlifting, I think that's essentially like, you know, if you're healthier, you're probably going to um, perform better. Um, but yeah. I guess my main, like, going off of that, you know, obviously, you know, I, I think you said a good, good thing is like intensity matters with, um, you know, how what, what you're doing. Um, do you think there's like a upper limit of like step counts where it might interfere with, like, say, like leg adaptations? Yeah. So... It, I definitely can't like point to the research and, and say anything on that specifically um, regarding the influence of very high step counts on, on strength or hypertrophy outcomes. Uh, what I can say from a practical perspective is uh, I think if you're pushing it too high, you'll know um, is, is kind of been my experience. And I, that's been relatively rare. I think you see some of the, uh, the, the greatest risk reduction in terms of, uh, mortality or death, uh, as well as morbidity, which is basically just the occurrence of disease somewhere in that, like seven to 9,000 step per day range seems to be like where you're going to get the majority of the benefits. And like, man, if you're, if seven to 9,000 steps per day is, uh, you know, negatively influencing your powerlifting, there's probably, uh, some other issues going on. So, uh, I think for, from a practical perspective, high step counts are highly unlikely to, uh, negative influence negatively influence someone's powerlifting training at least directly yeah that's been uh my experience too um i think the body's like pretty adaptable especially with like you know if it's low, low, low impact like walking it's like your body probably just yeah. adapts over time and you know typically like from pat Kelly perspective like, like what you said you'll know you'll be getting tired um you know yeah. walking will be a stressful thing and that's probably not good but yeah. i guess um jutting off of this um i think that one thing i want to go over was individualizing back offset intensity because this is something that i see a little more often um with with, with some of my lifters you know some people seem to operate at a pretty high average intensity and even respond pretty well, well to it other people seem to respond better to um lower average and in intensity um and uh, like for example i had one of my athletes trevor um he was we we're doing like like three by sixes you know single minus 25 percent um something like that um and he was just getting pretty fatigued from that and I was like, well, you know, kind of jetting off of what you guys said about, you know, with your lower, lower fatigue training, let's try doing like a six by three instead of a three, three by six with the same back offset um, intensity like reduction. And he started making as like the best progress he really ever has. So what do you, I guess, from a coaching perspective, um, what goes through your head when, you know, when we're individualizing back offset intensity? Because I think, you know, from the research, right, like top set intensity is what's going to be that primary driver, but we still need to have a certain amount of work to drive other characteristics of strength. Um, so I guess I'll let you go from, from there. Yeah, this is a really interesting uh, kind of discussion and also one that I think circles around how my mind has changed since uh, I think it was episode 15 when uh, when Zach and I were on a couple years ago. Um, I think before and... I think a lot of people still kind of have this mindset is that people quote unquote respond to different training approaches, which I think is true. And, and, and I think any coach that is uh, attentive is going to agree that like, yes, different lifters quote unquote respond differently to, to different training approaches. Um, but I think it's helpful. And, and I think this is particularly where the research can come in 
is trying to understand why that's the case. Um, I think some coaches, and again, my, myself in the past, will kind of just think like, oh, this is just better for them. And uh, we don't necessarily have an explanation. And, and I'm not saying that research can always provide an explanation, but instead it can uh, give you a framework in terms of what is actually driving the response. What is the cost benefit analysis here? And as a result, you can kind of get to these creative solutions a little bit more efficiently. So, you know, take the example of, uh, I think you said like a, a top single followed by a 25% drop uh, for a three by six, right? So let's say that three by six, I'd say for, for a lot of people with that drop, you're maybe talking about like RP7, RP8 for, for the back off, something like that, right? Um, what the research can kind of indicate to us is that like, hey, the the actual RPE there isn't independently driving the effect in terms of the, the strength gain, right? We see that at a given load and at a given volume, the proximity to failure doesn't really uh, drive the strength gains independently. That doesn't mean that you can train at RP negative 10 and, and maximize your strength gains because obviously with a sufficient load on the bar and you know, just from a practical perspective, doing more than one or two reps per set for every single set you do, you're going to have to do multiple, uh, you know, you're going to have to train at a, a decent RPE, but you can take that concept and say, okay, that three by six, um, you know, that's leading to some negative, uh, some, some downstream effects on fatigue and thus further downstream effects on the ability to tolerate future training, you know, the, the peak intensity used next week, et cetera. And you can say, okay, what if we flip those sets and reps and do, um, six sets of three. And as a result, okay, same load, same total volume and a lower RPE, which some people might tolerate a lot better and boom, you can kind of have your cake and eat it too. And I, I use that example because I think it's a good one of working backwards from what seems to actually drive strength. Um, and importantly, intraset fatigue. So just the amount of fatigue you accumulate within a set seems to have basically no uh, direct effect on strength gains, at least in the short term. Now, things might get a little bit complicated when you start to think about the role of hypertrophy over, over a longer time period, but at least in the relatively short term, and especially I think this is relevant for like your main SPD work because the goal there is to get better at, at the lift. And if you get some hypertrophy from it, awesome. But, you know, we're, we're probably using other tools or other days to, to kind of really focus on the, the hypertrophy side of things. Um, so we can say, okay, from the research, we see that intensity, which I would uh, quibble with that terminology a little bit. And instead of intensity, I would just say load, because I think intensity can kind of mean a lot of different things to different yeah. people. But, you know, intensity kind of from a textbook definition is percentage of 1RM. Again, I prefer that term of, of load. That seems to uh, drive strength gains. And particularly, peak intensity seems to drive strength gains. Again, intraset fatigue or the RPE you train at when you're at a given load does not seem to really matter. And then volume, um, we're, we're going to have a pretty robust analysis coming out on this within the next couple months. But volume for, for strength gains uh, seems to be important to some degree, but not this thing that you need to maximize at all costs. So it's like, okay, we, we need sufficient volume and we need sufficient uh, intensity or, or sufficient load. And... Importantly, and, and I think this is something that can help from a, a research communication and implementation perspective, is that um, just because higher volumes might be better on average or higher 
peak intensities or average intensities or, or again, peak loads or average loads are better on average does not mean that sliding down that scale towards lower volumes or lower peak loads or lower average loads is going to lead to no strength gains, right? And again, we need to basically, to answer your question, how do I think about back off prescription, especially in terms of the, the load used, is I'm going to say, okay, in a vacuum, probably what's best for uh, the strength stimulus is to do like 30 singles at a 10 RPE. But obviously that's not going to be realistic from like a psychological perspective, from a fatigue management perspective, and from, you know, and, and, and thus as a result, accumulating sufficient volume. So I kind of work backwards from there and say, okay, we need to do more than probably one rep per set to make things efficient in terms of getting some volume in. Um, and we want to use kind of the heaviest load we can sustain. Um, and then we can adjust the reps per set uh, based on this balance of like efficiency because higher reps per set are going to be a little bit more efficient. Lower reps per set, a lot of people will, will kind of tolerate a little bit better. And then we can individualize that back off prescription. So for some folks, that might mean, okay, they have no problem handling 85% for their back off bench work. And they can do a bunch of doubles or triples or something like that with with their back off work for bench. Awesome. That's probably going to be, uh, you know, a really good strength stimulus and, and based on the research, a really good uh, approach. However, <laughs> that's just not going to be something that's tolerable or sustainable for a lot of people, especially if they're benching, you know, four or five times per week. So you kind of work backwards from there and you say, okay, um, maybe 70 to 75% is kind of the sweet spot at this point, at this point in the week, because, you know, their elbows don't hurt, uh, 48 hours later for their next bench session. And, you know, they're able to, uh, accumulate volume a little bit more efficiently. And then on the other extreme is like, I have some guys, and this tends to be people that are just have a higher absolute strength is you can really go down those to those lower intensities, just because that is the only thing that allows them to get insufficient volume, right? Like I, I have one guy that's uh, approaching a 700 pound squat right now. And uh, I just programmed his, uh, his kind of final weeks going into a meet right now. So it's kind of fresh on my mind. Um, but for him, man, like we're doing percentage based stuff and like, he's rarely touching for his back off work. At least he's rarely touching above 60%. And like, again, would it theoretically be optimal to use 80 or 85%, 100%, but like, he's just going to crash and burn if that's the case. And, and fatigue is going to completely make the block fizzle out, make us have to reset, et cetera. And again, we see these relationships that the research can kind of give us insight into, and then we can work backwards from there from a practical perspective and kind of move the, the, the chess pieces around on the, on the, on the, on the playing board, if you will, which is in this case, the, the client's program. I think that's a really interesting perspective because, um, you know, I think it comes down to like, where are you most stable in terms of performance on a week to week basis um, when you are driving that? And the reality is that I like what you said about how it could be different on different days, depending on what sort of fatigue you're is most prominent. You know, this is, you know, with, you know, working with Zordos, you know, the DUP uh, Lord, I guess you can call him that. Um, that's sort of what allows you to do is basically overload different systems because they're a little bit less fatigued and um so you know say like one day in the week you're doing like for example with my squat like the program right now it's you know i seem to respond a little bit better and in, in average to like lower average and in, in, like intensities and doing like more volume in general i see where i seem to have the most momentum 
Um, and you can really see this on like, say if I'm doing like a singles block or doing sets of like three to five, my output and volume is just higher. I can perform more, more work. I am less, I'm, it's, it's more easy to maintain my momentum on that. Like I can do, I did like a set of four with 474 for like, like RP seven and like for a single, like seven, it might be like 518. It's because like, I'm just not as skilled at it, but that drives more strength means I can, I can be better at it. And then as far as like back off intensity, um, it's kind of weird because like, I think as, as, as a coaches, like it's important to be athletes in this case, because I think that's kind of like intuitive what you said, the stronger that, that you get, you just, you can't have the same like absolute intensity on your down sets because it tends to be more and more fatiguing neurologically from that, the top set of a heavier that, that, that you go. And like, I don't even think about like RPE for myself personally, like Eric writes on, on my, my sheet, like five, five at six and seven. I kind of ignore that. And to be honest with you, I just go on how much, like how hard does it need, need, need to like feel how much volume do I actually need, need, need to handle. Um, especially with like, what is, I think of like, what's also going to be stable from like a technique perspective on their downsets, because I think that's really, really important to emphasize on downsets. I don't want to see technique breakdown really at, at all. I think those top sets though, they should be challenging that, that, te that technique because that's actual like te technique training. But, um, and then it just is like for myself too. Um, when I'm looking over like the overall microcycle, like frequency does matter too. I like what, what you said there. Um, and like, especially like higher frequency bench programs, I find the average intensity is just lower because you can't yeah. handle as much um, work day after day after day. So maybe instead of, you know, maybe you're deadlifting once per, per week, you can handle like, you know, 80 plus percent pretty stably, but maybe you, you know, that has to shift if you're doing twice a week or on a bench press, you know, more, maybe it's 65 to 75 percent. Um, like Sean Mariga talked about this in my life podcast. It's just like identifying like, where is the athlete most stable at? Where can they have the most momentum and then going off of like how do they feel i think you mentioned like one thing with like downstream effects too of like maybe you get more sore from those sets of six which is what's trevor's thing and he just wasn't like recovering as well so maybe we just do lower you know lower reps because we know that's going to be less it's, it's you know, obviously opportunity across all rep ranges but you know the most going to be more biased neurologically as opposed to you know having more of a skew with muscular um muscular uh demands so, yeah, I know I, I rambled on a little bit there, but this just comes down to communicating, like, with, like, with the athlete and just saying, like, where are they most stable? What, like, where do they feel good to? Is that is it, nobody wants to feel like, like, I think it's an important thing, like, not have your training feel like overly hard, mm -hmm. like, like that psychologically, that psychological stress is going to impact fatigue a lot. Yeah, kind of what I'm what I'm picking up, and 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 I agree with basically everything you said. Is like you got to keep the goal a goal um of of a given slot um so like a secondary squat day for you um is like one of the primary goals is to get some additional practice with the movement right and yeah is is using 80 percent plus uh going to be a little bit better practice potentially but 67 and a half percent like that's still some practice you know and what's more important within the grand scheme of things, it's going to be showing up to that primary day feeling at least mostly recovered to be able to express strength pretty well. Because again, that peak load or, or peak percentage of 1RM seems to be one of the primary factors that, that leads to positive strength gains. And I think that's that can kind of explain um, a lot, basically every concept that you talked about here, right? Like 
where does an athlete kind of groove in terms of percentage of one rem is, is what you said. Like, um, you know, some people, maybe, a kind of a, a, a lankier squatter, they see more technique breakdown, uh, at a given percentage of one RM, like maybe 75 percentage, 75% of one RM, you're starting to see some knee slide a little bit. Um, and you know, that those kind of, uh, breakdowns in technique, if you will, they aren't inherently injurious or like inherently, da uh, inherently dangerous by any means, but you know, it might kind of lower the ceiling in terms of what the lifter can recover from throughout the week. And again, show up for in that primary day, feeling good to be able to, uh, you know, have a, a decent peak load throughout the week. So, um, you know, I think we can take these concepts that again, momentum matters, uh, and, and kind of these subjective things about like, just, just like grooving in the, the protocols, um, not overexerting yourself from a psychological perspective four times a week, because you're a four time per week venture and, um, you know, allow that primary data to, to kind of drive things. And then everything else kind of fit around that and check the boxes you're looking at your, your, check the boxes you're trying to check from a, a program design perspective. I think one thing I've noticed too, anecdotally is range of motion is probably the one thing that impacts like how heavy you typically train at. Um, I feel like what you mentioned that link your squatter, I'm a linky boy. Like my bench press is like, I have linky, I have linky arms. Like my, my deadlift isn't even like very efficient. Like it's, it's pretty like long range of motion. My average intensity has to be rather low. Whereas with people that have, you know, maybe they are very efficient. So it's the deadlifter. Maybe they can operate and be more stable at the most higher percentage of one or max because they're doing less work per set. Yeah. I, uh, I think the range of motion concept is like, I, I fully agree with you. However, I don't think it's range of motion itself. That's driving this observation to be clear. This is my opinion. And, and, uh, like, I don't know this for sure to be the case, but I think probably what's a more, uh, likely explanation for this is just the individual's le leverages for that lift. Uh, and that also, that seems to be related to range of motion, right? Yeah. Who are some of the best, who are some of the best power lifters in their weight class it's guys on the shorter end, you know? Um, and they're going to have a lower or uh, reduced range of motion and they're going to have really good leverages for the lift. And, you know, as a result, dude, I'm, I'm six, four, I got femurs for days and, uh, you know, I'm just not going to be able to, to handle the same workload as someone that's also 225, which is how much I weigh and, uh, isn't six, four, but they're, you know, five, eight, and they just look like a, a big meatball and, you know, their leverages just allow them to, to sink into a squat nice and easy. Like, yeah, on a, on average, someone that's more like my archetype is probably going to be, you know, uh, be able to check those boxes we've talked about with a lower percentage of one rem, maybe a different volume allocation between the main lift and and some of their accessory work compared to uh, just this person that's that's built for powerlifting. And I think you mentioned uh, Mike Zordos, who is my PhD advisor, and he's the the principal investigator in the lab I work in. Um, and you know, this kind of DUP uh, approach is is relatively specific also pretty high frequency as well especially for the squat and deadlift and i think the people that respond best to that are people that are built to powerlift to be honest um and then i think that people that are less built to powerlift um whose leverages aren't quite as favorable uh those are the people that uh, require kind of working backwards from you know these these optimal approaches on paper and then you you start to look at these weird programs where 
or not, not weird in a bad way, but I should say like creative or just like unique programs of like, okay, we're doing like three sets of squat per week. And then the rest is on belt squat with a, a heel elevation. Right. Um, or, you know, not touching above 70% of one RM until the last week of the block. Right. Like those are relatively extreme examples, but, um, at least in my experience, those are people that are, have high absolute strength and people that aren't necessarily built to power lift is, is just been my observation. And again, that seems to, at least the latter one of not built to power lift seems to also kind of, um, correlate, uh, with a, a greater range of motion. Uh, I, I think that's a great, a great point. Um, I think like, that's actually one of the main reasons like why I think a lot of powerlifters um, struggle until they get a coach because, you know, most of those, you know, those, those free powerlifting programs, they're built for like, just assuming, oh yeah, you're built to powerlift, you know? Um, yeah. But the more that you kind of coach, you kind of realize like, it's great to start from like where the science says and what and most people respond well to, but you know, your you know, averages like aren't coaching. You're not working with averages yeah. in, in most cases. And I've seen the most funny things work. For people, um, I've had to challenge a lot of my own beliefs of like myself with like my own programming and like, you know, this is just yeah. like so I'm not built for the sport necessarily. But like, I think that comes down to like, I think a really good marker, like a good coach, is having that ability to like just challenge what they kind of like believe to be like this is what's optimal, this is what works the best. Um, we saw Sean. I mean, I mentioned Sean again, but. He said, like, one of the main things with the people are like, oh, I'm not making progress. It's like you just haven't exhausted all of your options. And yeah. like, you maybe need to, like, you know, expand your coaching, your coaching um, tool belt. I think a good example of this is Charlie Dixon, because, like, in, when he was starting out, um, from what he told me and what Brad Cooler told me, is like, it was very, like, typical DUP, high volume. And, like, he did make lots of lots of progress on it, but it also resulted in him getting hurt. And his programming is completely different now, much lower volume, um, lower intensity. And he's, you know, healthiest as he's been in a long time. So yeah. I know that you mentioned, um, you know, we talk about, you know, muscle, muscle growth is an important part of, of powerlifting. Um, but I think that, you know, there's ways to incorporate um, in different in different programs in a way that's going to not interfere as much with, with strength as we do know that excessive muscle damage um, is going to interfere with strength. Also, um, hypertrophy tends to operate a little better. You get you know, better growth here from what you're sort of pushing volume in my experience whereas strength and you know you can if i'm wrong it doesn't need as much volume and operates a little better in a lower fatigue environments um how would you sort of say you have somebody in like a 12 week meat prep but then you know they're going on up, up weight class they're trying to build some muscle but they're also trying to like peak for a meat at the end um how would you maybe periodize that over time or how should we as athletes and coaches you know think about this relationship with strength and adversity in our programming and Maybe with like a psychological approach to like how we approach exercises in different phases of training. Yeah, this is a, I guess I'll start by saying this is a, uh, a big question, right? I'm sure we could chat about this for, for two or three hours. And, uh, you know, I guess from a, from a scientific, from a scientific perspective, I'd be remiss to not mention that this is like a raging debate and, uh, people have different perspectives. Things get really, really nuanced because you start thinking about how exactly is muscle measured, right? You put an ultrasound probe on someone's quad and it's like, yeah, that's obviously an indication of the muscle size of their quad, but also you're putting the probe at one spot, right? We know that uh, different regions of the muscle might contribute to a given movement a little bit more than another. And 
hey, maybe uh, this individual's squat isn't quite as quote unquote quaddy as, as someone else's. Um, we also know that, hey, just looking at the muscle size um, on something like an ultrasound or an MRI, that is the whole muscle size. That's not always indicative. And, and I would say is not, all, uh, is not necessarily indicative of the actual uh, size of the, the contractile proteins or the abundance of the contractile proteins that are, are contributing to, to strength. So that's, that's uh, the scientist in me just making sure I, uh, I cross my T's and dot my eyes regarding the uncertainty here. Um, but you know, in, in the example of a, of a 12 week training cycle going into a meet, it's like, okay, someone's in a surplus and, and you simultaneously want to improve their body composition. Um, so, so increase muscle mass, uh, while simultaneously making sure they're at kind of peak performance by the end of the, the 12 week training cycle. I think it really depends on training advancement here, um, and how targeted the lifter has been with their training in the past. Because I think when we're thinking about the role of hypertrophy and strength development, it's important to keep in mind that, you know, getting bigger biceps or bigger lateral delts or rear delts, like that's not going to do a whole lot for SPD. What matters is primarily the, the prime movers and, you know, if I think there is a very high likelihood that I can develop a, a, a training approach for this individual that is going to improve the hypertrophy uh, response of the prime movers, I'm probably going to lean very hard into that for almost the entire 12 week training cycle. And like tapers can be really simple. Um, they can be like a week or half a week and you can see a pretty good uh, response. I don't think you need to do anything super fancy. And I think you can have a pretty polarized approach in that case. Uh, so you can have like, you know, one to, to four sets of the main lift, you know, that's, that's relatively heavy. And then you can just go target those prime movers. Again, if I think that individual has a high likelihood of putting on meaningful muscle mass over a 12 week period. And specifically in the areas that I identify as their quote unquote strength limiter. And this is something that's kind of new in, in my and Zach and Jake and Drake, which are all of our coaches here are thinking is yes, the prime movers of each lift are important to grow, but also, um, every lifter is, is probably going to have a muscle or muscles that are going to kind of give out first at uh, a top end, right? So you can look at training footage and, and ideally it's, it's heavy loads and it's either like a weight they just missed. So they don't get the rep, but it was like really close or they just barely got, and you can look at how they move to get some indication regarding, um, what muscles were kind of the, the quote unquote weak point. So like if I have someone who, again, I think, uh, I, I look at their squat and I'm like, those quads are just completely given out and you know, they're, they can't even get out of the hole at all. We're seeing a little bit of knee slide and then they just, boom, they, they dump the bar and they, they can't get it. Um, and their training beforehand was just not very good for quad growth. It's like, man, we could probably do some damage in terms of quad growth over these 12 weeks. We're going to put a lot of effort into that. But then on the, the other side, it's like, okay, I have someone that's been following that sort of approach. If I've been working with them for years and it's like, okay, we have 12 weeks to maximize this individual strength. It's like, I don't know how much, uh, you know, how much muscle growth we're going to see over the next 12 weeks, my friend. And, uh, we're probably better off making sure we're really focused on the rhythm going into the meet, 
um, timing up like the heaviest exposures to make sure that we can strike when the iron's hot on the platform. Um, and that might come with kind of a, a, a slight reduction in, uh, like the, the hypertrophy work that the individual is, is doing. Um, but just, but just enough to, to maintain. So those were kind of the extremes, right? Like someone that I think can see a lot of muscle growth over the 12 weeks. And then someone that is, is unlikely to do, to, uh, see a lot of muscle growth over the 12 weeks. But obviously a lot of people are going to kind of be in the middle there. And that is, that would kind of lead to how I would describe my general periodization approach over the course of a training cycle. And that is to periodize the intercept fatigue throughout the, the training cycle. So again, intercept fatigue is just like, okay, you have a given weight on the bar. Um, how, um, how fatigued are you at the end of the set compared to when you started the set? So when you were fresh, right. Um, and for hypertrophy, so, so that is almost identical to just proximity to failure or RPE. Um, so a higher intercept fatigue would mean a closer proximity to failure and higher RP. It's not the exact same thing, but more or less it is, it is the same thing. And what we see for hypertrophy is that proximity to failure seems to, to matter a good amount. And, um, but we also know, like you mentioned, it's like, okay, the training a little bit closer to failure, uh, might be a little bit harder to recover from. Um, and as a result, you might sacrifice your primary day performance to some degree, right? You would want to set it up. So you minimize that sacrifice, but you're probably going to have to sacrifice that to some degree, but we'll take that trade off early on in the cycle because the goal isn't necessarily to maximize top end strength right here, right now, this week, right? The meat, the, the, the meat is in 10 weeks, you know, let's, let's make sure we're setting ourselves up for, for success then. But then later in the cycle, it's like, okay, you know, at this point, any additional hypertrophy we get, sure, that'd be great. But like, that's not the primary goal. The primary goal right now is to make sure you're in the best possible position to get some good practice going into the meet and, um, you know, taper well. So at that point, I don't care about the, uh, the intercept fatigue all that much. Right. And if anything, like we discussed before by reducing the intercept fatigue, so think doing, you know, doubles instead of sixes for your back offs, and maybe as a result, using slightly heavier loads, um, that's going to potentially provide a recovery benefit um, so that by the time you circle back around to your primary day, you feel better, you can get better rhythm going into the meet. And again, at this point, we're so close to the meet that that should kind of be the priority. So as a result, you kind of see this, this decrease in average RPE for kind of the, the back off work or the, the hypertrophy accessory type work across the training cycle. I also think you can periodize the psychological approach, right? Based on the, the goal of the, the week you're in or the block you're in right early on again, that RPE for kind of the, the back off work or the hypertrophy work might be higher. And also you can say, Hey, you know, obviously bring a lot of focus to your, your comp squat this week, but like, dude, those, uh, those hack squats you're doing, or those belt squats you're doing, like arguably those are more important. Just make sure you don't sand sandbag those. Make sure that if anything, bring more juice to, to that accessory work. And then you can kind of flip that later in the, in the cycle, right? Because again, you kind of only have so much that you can bring a lot of, a lot of juice to. So you kind of got to pick your spots. And I think that creates kind of this nice starting point, uh, at least from a conceptual perspective in terms of how intercept fatigue, which often manifests in, in average RP can change throughout a training cycle and, and specifically kind of decrease to shift that focus from the hypertrophy side of things more towards the top end strength expression side of things.
So do you think that like maintaining volume as you do lower down the interest at fatigue and, you know, say like you're close to a meet, does that matter? Or can you kind of like get a, like a, benefit for like a taper as that kind of happens, like the intensity, maybe in like the volume on the down sets? Yeah, I, my honest answer, man, is I don't know. And I kind of go back and forth on this. So like one, one option is to say like, okay, we're going to reduce the back offset average RPE, maintain or increase load slightly. And as a result, you could do more sets, right? So you could go like, let's just use like an isolated example. You go three sets of six on a slot uh, early on in the block or sorry, early on in the cycle. And then later in the cycle, do you go, you know, maybe bump the load up a little bit. Do you go three sets of three or do you go uh, six sets of three, right? Cause the latter is actually maintaining your, your training volume. Whereas the former is like reducing the training volume. And as a result, um, probably reducing fatigue even further um, with reducing volume. I have run into the problem of just the lifter feeling out of practice because they have less total reps with the lift. So that's probably like the biggest thing to be wary of. So I would say my starting point is to use about 85%. So damn near the same volumes we were using before, even when that intercept fatigue is reduced because maintaining sufficient practice seems to help. Um, but again, also reducing the volume, you might see a slight benefit. Um, from a, from a recovery perspective and, and fatigue management perspective. Um, so I, it, it seems to be pretty individual. Like I, I I'm thinking of my client roster of some people where I would not touch their volume within like four days of them stepping on the platform. And then I have other guys that are like, yeah, let's cut that thing down to 50%. And, uh, we, we know we're going to see some benefit from that. So seems to, to vary a good amount. Yeah. I have, a. My, my, my perspective on, on that because I did that, I was like, I got back, I go back and forth on, on this too. Like in my own training, I've observed that as long as like I maintain like my intensity, like on my downsets, like that are similar to like, say like those, um, say I was doing like higher reps or whatever, like I tend to be okay if I'm reducing the volume. However, if I, you know, I'm already on the intercept, if you like fatigue as we do that, I think that's important to maintain the total amount, amount of, of work done in general, because it's like, I think you risk you're changing a little bit too much because I think this comes back to like the effective reps concept too. Um, or like you want to maintain those effective reps and maybe like, maybe, you know, a sets of six, your, you know, your effective reps are, are three. And then maybe as you go and you get, you know, have your ability, you're maintaining that at the intensity is going up. And personally, I think that's what matters for strength. And that's how I sort of track it. Um, but I also think, you know, it's like you said, it can be, it's nuanced um, yeah. and just depends on, you know, where the lifter again, like feels most stable um, is, you know, we, we can always talk about, you know, these theoretical concepts and I think it's important in these podcasts to, to do that. But ultimately this, this comes down to your ability to actually coach and your ability to communicate with, with the athlete and, you know, ask mm -hmm. like, how do they feel? What's most psychologically, you know, fun for them. Um, because like for somebody like myself, I come from a bodybuilding background. If like, I have like really easy down sets, it's just like, it depends on, on the exercise, but like it has to be like again, like a certain like amount of heart I have to like maintain throughout the, yeah. the, the training block. And if that like leaves too much, it's like I'm changing a little bit too much. I also think that this is also comes down to I think you can make that up with the average intensity or like with the accessory work. Like if you have a like lower average or like intensity on your downsides like a squat, you probably should push your accessories better. This is probably the reason why you have lower average intensities because you're not well leveraged for, for that. And you can't really, you know, like I, you can't really like have benefit from it the same. I like how you said like to be like identifying like is this uh, does this athlete have like actual strength limiter 
from a muscular like perspective, that's really like limiting them. And then maybe that dictates how much to be biased towards, you know, having that higher interest set fatigue on, you know, accessories or, or whatnot. I mean, you can obviously, you know, look like a body weight, but I think everybody is going to have that, that the muscle group regardless that kind of like gives out um, if they have like a certain pattern. So um, yeah. I know Barl Messon also has a meta, like a perspective. And I don't think this is like inaccurate at all either. Like training that gets you stronger in the long run, as long as your volume is, is like sufficient with the, and most powerlifting powerlifting programs, you're probably have at least 10 sets per week for muscle group. Um, you're probably mm -hmm. going to be able to maximize muscle growth over time. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It, I think, I think this, uh, you, you mentioned Charlie, um, who I think is a part of bubble medicine, right? Yeah. So I, I, I don't know about that anecdote specifically. Um, but I'll just refer to it here. Um, because I, I know you mentioned it because that resonated a lot with me because that's something I noticed as well is that things have, things seem to need to get more targeted later in a training career and like yeah 10, 10 sets of squats per week for someone that's been training for less than whatever five six seven years is almost certainly going to be plenty but i've definitely observed and and you know uh, i'm a human being my ability to uh, determine causality from an observational perspective is uh is as uh, limited as anyone else's but it seems to be the case that things need to be more targeted as you get more advanced. And um, there might be a, a time when doing 10 sets of squats per week is, is just not going to lead to any meaningful muscle growth um, over a long enough time period. Like I, I, I feel pretty confident saying that for at least for some people. Now, again, you take the, the person that's built to squat and like, you know, they, they uh, see a, 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 some good, a good stretch on their quads at the bottom of the squad and um there it's it's very tolerable etc that's a totally different story than again maybe we take a someone that's less built to squat um and you know having them actually do some volume on a on a exercise that allows them to get a deep stretch in their quads and then they put 50 pounds in their squat over the next calendar year like i've just seen that enough times to uh to take it seriously and, um, you know, I, I just think it becomes a different ball game when you take someone that's been doing that for years and years and years and just kind of hit this asymptote of strength. Um, I think you, you got to identify the, the weak link. Sometimes it's technical, oftentimes it's muscular and, uh, make things very targeted, uh, from that perspective. I think a good way to know, like, you know, if that's, if that's actually like enough volume or not, like, you know, with, with what you said is like when they gain weight, is it, are they gaining muscle or is it like mostly just fat? Because, you know, whenever you're gaining weight, you have to remember the training is the reason why you're building muscle. And, you know, if you're just not building muscle, like where you want it, or you know, the same is just getting fatter, maybe you do need actually need to increase that, the volume over time. Um, yeah. because you know, like, you know, especially because, you know, the average, you can have the volume pretty damn low and see pretty robust strength gains. Um, you know, if you have muscle, you like, you know, be able to like, carry you there um yeah. without like really noticing okay i'm actually like looking better or i know my body composition looks about about the same when I'm five pounds up um yeah. but I, I do think like like my own my own bias is like my own, my own coaching perspective is like i really push accessories um because i just mm -hmm. find it's just it's that if you can get more volume it's more recoverable it just tends to also be like really fun for a lot yeah. of 
people, I've anecdotally seen less injury rates with even having more movement variability. And that's a huge part of my coaching system. And I think you see with, you know, some coaching systems that are really emphasize that specificity, you, mm-hmm. you get more banged up and that impacts the training career over time. And as somebody yeah. like, you know, who comes with an athletic training background, rehab is a big part of like what I think about, like, I really think about long-term and what's going to keep this athlete healthy in, in the long run. Because you can do a lot of extreme things in the short term and you might mm-hmm. really see really good progress, but over the long run, is that going to result in you need, need to rehab for six months, a year, mm-hmm. you know, and backsliding. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, so, I couldn't, I don't think I, uh, I think I agree with basically everything you said. Um, I also would just, I know, I know we're, we probably got to wrap up here, but the last thing I'll say to kind of underscore what you just said here is like, I also just think that, um, humans are very adaptable and, um, fatigue management is vital as we've mentioned multiple times here. But, um, you know, I think back to my days as a, uh, as a very average basketball player, right. Playing like varsity ball during parts of the year and then like AAU ball during other parts of the year. And, uh, you know, probably playing basketball in some capacity on average for like 15 hours a week. And, you know, also doing like strength conditioning on top of that. And like, Hey, sometimes I'd also have a baseball tournament in there. It's like, I just think back to granted, I, I had basically no life stressors at the time, but I think we, we sometimes, uh, fail to account for what we can adapt to, especially when it's targeted and controlled to some degree, right? Like um, sure. Someone might never be able to tolerate 20 sets of squats per week, but I don't know, man, one of my clients just sent me a, uh, an old magazine that, uh, his, his wife's dad had because his wife's dad used to be a bodybuilder. And like, you look at some of those protocols now, granted there's, you know, uh, additional, uh, additional supplementation there that, that probably is playing a role, but like, man, those training protocols were, were pretty extreme. And, um, you know, if, if you gradually build up to something and of course, understand that fatigue management matters, I think, uh, what you can recover from and benefit from can be uh, higher than, than a lot of people, uh, than a lot of people think, and also just make you more resilient. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I think this is a good example with like, well, my coaching system, I give my beginners lots of high intensity singles because they're so new. Um, I also, because I want them, you know, they can adapt to that. I want them also to learn how to like work hard. Um, yep. and I, I think like, that's one of the things that I did well, my first, like, I mean, I, I trained really hard. Like I did really heavy top sets. I, I trained just, you know, like an, like an idiot, but I adapted to it and I really learned how to like train. And like, that's also like why I can grind really well. I think there's like a skill, yep. like, like there's a lot of value in learning how to push and we are more adaptable than we do do think and i think that you know it's 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 valuable as an athlete although look at like look at some of the you know like like i think like proximity to failure you know the most extreme example is like john Hack. you know he he can train rp 9.5 10 and still adapt and that's how shall he gets his best response um i have some athletes like like that too they just respond really well that's that peak load um mm-hmm. then you need to be willing to like like psychologically like i love that like and like i love that i don't like easy sets like and mm-hmm. like on like my squat like i i, I actually respond a little better to that but it's also like psychological and 
you kind of need to just eat, like you need to try lots of different things and fatigue matters like fatigue management does matter but i think people get too worried about fatigue at the expense of working mm-hmm. hard yeah i, I mean basically I, I, th- I think probably a, a good uh mental model here for the listeners like take everything that we talked about throughout this podcast but then just like make sure that that is on top of the foundation of like not pussyfooting around, you know, and, and, and knowing how to, to train hard. And, um, because it's like, you know, I, I use the example of, uh, like one of my lifters where we don't touch above, you know, whatever, 60, 70% until the last week of a block. And it's like, yeah, but like you, you should see how hard he's going on, on his accessories. And, um, you know, we mentioned concurrent training, that individual happens to also be doing a lot of, um, interval type work right now and, and some steady state work as well. Uh, because having some energy for deadlift on the platform has been an issue in the past. Right. So it's like, there's, there's just no way around training hard. And, and, um, but then when you have that kind of foundation, you say, okay, where are we going to allocate that effort? Right. Um, I... and where are we going to ensure those principles are, are being accounted for and then you move those chess pieces around based on what the individual needs and and what you've observed from them in the past. I think a good way to like frame the science-based training, it's how do I most efficiently train hard? It's not always train easier. It's how do I most efficiently train hard? Because you're going to have to work hard. It's there's no there's no way around it. Yeah. And uh identifying because when something has to give, what is not what is the least likely thing to be uh, contributing to a positive response, right? And if you know those concepts, and and um, I've kind of changed my mind about, or not changed my mind, but shifted my mindset around the the role of research, I'd say, over the last four or five years, is that the goal is to understand the physiological concepts through studies that are as internally valid as possible. Um, like, I don't think the goal is necessarily to test a, uh, microcycle configure configuration a to microcycle configuration b it's like i think if we understand the concepts the coach is more than well equipped to handle those things right instead i care about what seem to be the the variables what's the dose response relationship between variable a and outcome uh and outcome b right is that a a linear dose response where theoretically the 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 more that variable is cranked up there's no there's, there's going to be a benefit from a physiological perspective, or is it diminishing returns, right? Do you see a strong benefit from going from four to eight sets, but then that really tapers off after that on average? Or again, is that a completely linear response or is it an inverted U where there's a point of too much and then you actually see a diminished response. And then once we have those concepts, um, you know, that's ultimately how you can determine where to allocate the effort. And if something has to give, where are we pulling from first? I think that's a great way to end these off. So thank you for coming on, on Josh. If people want to follow you, how are you? Where should they head? Yeah, I'd say the the best way to uh, keep in touch with us is if you go to my Instagram, Strength, you can give me a follow and check out my link tree. You can sign up for our newsletter, uh, which is probably the best way to keep in touch with us and, and kind of be updated on what we're doing. Also in my link tree in my Instagram, uh, there's a link to my research gate. So you can check out the research 
that I've been a part of that's out there. And then that'll also be the place where uh, new research is, is put as well. Great. Well, make sure I include all those things in the show notes. And thank you again for, for coming on, Josh. And thanks to everybody for listening. I'll talk to you guys in the next one. Peace.